Well, it's great to join you this morning. Let me encourage you to keep that passage open in front of you. Uh, it's always great reading it yourself, uh, partly because you then know where it is uh, and you can go back to it. One of the great things about uh, hearing expositional preaching is that you can have parts of the Bible open to you that you've never been to before or never been to as an adult. So it's always great to have it open in front of you. Um, and uh, there's an outline and you can take notes if you want. Uh, that's also a good way to just keep yourself on track uh, and to keep yourself uh, focused on the talk and not thinking about what else is happening out there. It's very easy to do. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word and we thank you for this different little part of your word, the book of Ruth. We pray that as we look at it again today, that you would open our hearts and minds, that we may see what you have to say to us and that we may see your son Jesus in all his glory. Amen. Well, blood is something that is thicker than water. It's a common saying, isn't it? And, uh, and it's a true saying. It highlights one of the aspects of life that is, as I get older, I see more and more. Uh, it's that, generally speaking, your family will stick with you through thick and thin. Uh, they'll go into bat for you when others are having a go. Uh, and they'll be there for you in need when tragedy strikes, as it so often does. Blood's thicker than water. And so often it is family that will intervene and help uh, save the day when you're in need. And with that comes an obligation as well. It's not just a one-way thing. It's also something that you give out to. Because uh, when a family member is in need, well, well then there's a general duty to help. Uh, you feel that uh, I should do something. Uh, and those of us who've been around a while will go, I can think of a time when I had to do something to help a family member. Maybe they were needing moving or maybe they were, uh, there was a, a relationship bust up or some kind of drama or someone was sick or, and I had to go and help. Uh, maybe you were the recipient of that. It's something that is part of our lives. This idea, this concept that as relatives we ought to look after each other because blood is thicker than water. And in today's passage, we see someone who responds to a call for help from a relative. And his help is somewhat extreme. We would see it as extreme today. Uh, and his help is crucial, though, for the ongoing redemption of Naomi and Ruth. Uh, he is what's called a kinsman redeemer. And we'll be discovering a bit about what that term is. Uh, it's a specific type of relative who has a specific obligation to those in need. Uh, and so we'll meet him, we'll, we'll discover about the concept, and we'll perhaps discover that we also have a kinsman redeemer. Uh, and we'll also discover, as we continue to arc our way through the, the book of Ruth, what's going to happen next to Naomi and Ruth. And I hope you've been enjoying the series so far and enjoying the story of Ruth, because it's a great story. So, so far in the story, we've seen Naomi and Ruth uh, be widowed in Moab, and then return to Naomi's hometown, Bethlehem. Uh, they come back, though, poor and destitute, and in Naomi's case, extremely bitter. In fact, she wants to be called bitter. She wants to be called Mara. Uh, she feels that God is against her. But in chapter 2, we see a glimmer of hope. 
for Naomi and for Ruth. Ruth goes out to glean in the barley harvest, as is her right under the Levitical laws, and she, by what seems to be a coincidence, but isn't, picks a field that belongs to Boaz. And he doesn't just obey the law and let her glean, he goes beyond the law and shows amazing generosity towards Ruth and through her to Naomi. And chapter 2 ends with Naomi mentioning that Boaz happens to be a close relative and is a kinsman redeemer. And this gives us a hint as to what we're going to look at today in chapter 3. So let's rejoin in chapter 3 in verse 1. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? And it's a significant moment in the book of Ruth. And it's the moment that Naomi starts to plan for a better future for Ruth and herself. Instead of complaining bitterly, as she did in chapter 1, or being the passive recipient of grace and kindness in chapter 2, she now gets on the front foot, if you like. She now has a positive plan to better themselves. Uh, It's as if hope has started again for Naomi. She thinks that something is possible other than this grinding poverty in which she's living now. And it would seem that the generosity of Boaz is helping in this regard. And so she comes up with a plan that provides the husband that she said that she couldn't give Ruth back in chapter 1. So back in chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, she said to both Ruth and her sister-in-law, Orpah, I can't give you a husband. It's impossible. Now, she's saying, I am going to provide you with a husband. This has been a big change happening inside for Naomi. And let's be honest here, Ruth, though, isn't the only beneficiary of a possible marriage for Ruth. Don't be deceived by the selfless language that you see there in verses 1 to 4. It's couched very selflessly, isn't it? And Naomi is going, I'm going to do this for you. Actually, Naomi stands to gain a lot uh, from any marriage of Ruth and Boaz. As the mother or the matriarch of the family, she'll be cared for by Boaz and Ruth in her old age. She'll go from being dirt poor to being wealthy and set up for life. What's more, if Ruth produces a child in this new union, then that child will be an heir for her dead husband and her dead son, according to Israelite law. And so her plan for Ruth to marry Boaz is not completely altruistic. She stands to gain a lot. So the question at this point of the passage is, will Ruth obey her mother-in-law? And marry the man that Naomi has picked out for her. We read in verses 5 to 8 that she does. And in verse 9, she follows all the instructions meticulously. And then in verse 9, she pops the question. And we're just going to zero in now on that romantic moment in verse 9. Have a look. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. 
Ruth proposes to Boaz, which is probably the first thing that in our minds is a foreign concept, okay? And we probably go, whoa, that's very forward. But it would have been actually obvious to all parties that it's not actually Ruth proposing. It's actually Naomi proposing this marriage using Ruth. Uh, Although that's a foreign concept for us, it isn't to them. Uh, It was the accepted practice in the ancient Near East and it still is the accepted practice in lots of countries today around the world that your parents will organise your marriage for you, that they will decide whom you marry. Uh, And we see Naomi's control in her commands uh, at the beginning of the chapter. She's the one issuing the orders. And then at the end of the chapter, Boaz sends Ruth home to Naomi with something as a kind of a pledge that, yes, I am going to follow through and do, do this. So you can see here Naomi's control over this. Now, the proposal also takes an interesting form. That's the other odd thing for us. Because, I don't know about you, but I can't see a romantic dinner there. I can't see any candlelight. I can't see any nice soft music playing. I can't see any um, flowers, uh, maybe a violinist. Nothing. It's, it's devoid of any kind of romantic anything. In fact, the phrase, spread the corner of your garment over me, is a call not so much for romantic, but it's a call for protection and provision that marriage will bring. It's not about romantic love at all. In fact, there's not really anything romantic going on here. Basically, Ruth is asking for help. And the basis of this call for help is that Boaz is obligated to help because he is a kinsman redeemer. It's basically... Please fulfill your duty and marry me. It's catchy, isn't it? So what is a kinsman redeemer? Well, the law obligated close male relatives of a deceased family member to marry the widow of the dead man. And this was about provision for the widow. But also about continuing the memory of the dead man. As the first son born to the widow in the new marriage would be reckoned as the dead man's son and carry his name, thus keeping his name alive. Back then you didn't have surnames, you were known as the son of. Okay, we, anyone's got a Mac name, McDonald or whatever, that, that's kind of a throwback to those kind of things. Okay, or an O'Connor name or an O name, you have the same kind of thing, son of. Um, some of the people also have son in their names. The English way of doing it is put son at the end. Uh, and so they are hangover from that age when you would be known as the son of. Uh, and so it's all about keeping the name alive. And we read about that in our other passage in Deuteronomy chapter 25. That wasn't just a random passage that uh, Graham thought up. That actually relates directly to this passage. It's actually, we're seeing the outworking of that command of the scriptures here. And in this, we see that marriage in the ancient world was not about mutual self-fulfillment and the romantic feelings and warm fuzziness that we tend to associate with marriage. 
for most people, it's a concept, that kind of concept of mutual self-fulfillment and romance and making someone happy is, a, is something that's come about because of the immense wealth of our society in Australia. It's not actually normal. For most people in history and most people today, marriage has been about the three Ps. Protection, provision and procreation. Men and women married to protect each other through family alliances. That's why it was part of the business of the family that you, who you married, because that was joining the families together in self-protection. Mutual protection. Uh, it was about provision because they provided hard just to survive and get enough calories to make it through the day. And they procreated not because children are cute, but because they would grow up and protect them and importantly provide for them in their old age. We don't have that here because we have super and the pension and Medicare and all those wonderful things. And that is why it's such a foreign concept to us. But for them, this is the norm. This is how you would think about marriage. And the kinsman redeemer law should be seen as part of this cultural norm. I wonder if you, somebody to think about and maybe chat about over morning tea... Which type, kind of concept of marriage is the more biblical or the more godly one? Isn't that an interesting thought? Which one's better? I think there's pros and cons for both and it'd be worth having a good discussion about that. But in any case, Boaz is one of these close male relatives for Marlon, who is Ruth's dead husband. She, he is a kinsman redeemer to her and to Naomi. And so Ruth's proposal is a call on him to do his duty and marry her as a kinsman redeemer. But will Boaz agree? The tension flips from will, will Ruth do what she's told to will Boaz agree? Well, let's read on in verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Here we see Boaz agrees. He agrees to do his duty and marry Ruth. And we mustn't think that this was an easy thing for him to do or that Boaz was motivated by having an attractive young wife. Uh, in fact, Ruth would not have been seen as being attractive in her age, in her time. Uh, she was dirt poor and would have been um, out, in, well, we know from Ruth that she was out in the hot fields harvesting and, and gathering grain and that would have made her what? What happens if you go out in the sun lots, guys? You get a tan. Tan looks good, doesn't it? Not in the ancient world. You've got to flip your idea of beauty around because in the ancient world, not being tanned was a sign of wealth. 
because you didn't have to go out in the fields. And of course, society always tends to look towards those who are wealthy as being the beautiful ones. Uh, so you see in, say, Song of Songs, chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, uh, the woman complaining that she was dark and she'd been forced to go out and work in the vineyards by her brothers. And so she was ugh, tanned. <laughs> okay. It's amazing how our ideas of, of beauty are cultural things rather than actual truth. But there you go. So he would, he, she would not have been seen as being a beauty. That's the first thing we know about it. She was also pre-loved. She'd been married before in a culture that prized virginity in brides. And she was also a Moabitess, not an Israelite. So she's a low-status bride. And we mustn't think that the wealthy Boaz wouldn't have been able to find a family willing to give him one of their good-looking young Israelite virgin daughters and so be allied with the wealthy Boaz. Um, for the father of such a, a daughter, he, he would have been a good catch for the family. Remember, they think differently about it to us. Okay? And so he, if he had wanted that, if that has been what he was looking for, then he would have had ample opportunity to have got a young Israelite girl in from Bethlehem. Now, we should see this as Boaz agreeing to do his duty for Ruth wasn't a great catch. Boaz is being selfless and kind here in marrying to provide for Ruth, but also critically for Naomi. Because remember, Naomi's in the background of all of this. But he also notes, again, the kindness of Ruth towards Naomi. So you notice there he talks in, in these verses here of Ruth's kindness, and he's referring to the kindness not to him, but it's, his, it's her kindness to Naomi. Uh, he'd seen this back in chapter 2, verse 11, when he talked about how she'd left everything to come with Naomi to this weird foreign land called Israel, where they spoke a different language and, uh, weird, had different things, probably played the wrong kind of football, you know, the, all the box and dice. And it's the same problem. Uh, he, here she's being even more kind to Naomi uh, in choosing to marry Boaz in saying yes to this because it will mean protection and provision for Naomi and for Ruth, Boaz isn't a great catch either. Now we immediately think, oh, that's because he's a bit older and probably a bit, you know, not very good looking anymore because as we get older we tend to mature in our looks uh, that's the way that our thinking would go naturally okay but that's not probably the way they would have thought they would have thought he may not be able to provide the son so there may be fertility issues which is critical remember procreation is really important okay because that's your old age but the other thing is he's a high risk proposition you say why Remember, he's older. What tends to happen sooner to older people than to younger people? 
And that would mean that Ruth would be a widow again at an older age and potentially find it almost impossible after a second time to find another, another husband. And so a lesser woman with less noble character would not look at Boaz and go, oh yeah, what a catch. They'd say, what a risk. And wouldn't one of the other kinsmen redeemers be a better choice? Boaz would probably not be the first choice. So Boaz here can see and identify for us the kindness of Ruth in marrying Boaz for Naomi's sake, not for her own sake. The kindness or love of Ruth and Boaz is one of the key themes of the book of Ruth. And this kindness or love is seen in Ruth's staying with Naomi, in Boaz's generosity to the poor, and now in Ruth's proposing marriage and Boaz accepting marriage, saying yes. In both of these two characters, Ruth and Boaz, we see the spirit of the law fulfilled naturally by love and kindness. In fact, they go beyond the letter of the law in their love of others. Now, as Christians, we know that this is how Jesus wants us to live as his followers. Having been saved by his grace, we now live with, under his lordship. Uh, and this kind of way of thinking, of fulfilling the law through love, the spirit of law we see in Matthew chapter 5, and what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Worth having a read of. For in Ruth, what we see is a real-life illustration of that attitude. If we want to know what that kind of attitude looks like, we would do a lot worse than reading the book of Ruth. And so there it is, the happy ending. Boaz and Ruth show kindness and are going to get married. And Naomi, who was empty, is going to be filled. It's a happy ending, except it's not because... We have a complication in verse 12. There is a last minute hitch. It's like someone at the, you know, those points of the wedding where someone goes, you know, the minister says, is there anyone who can say that these two shouldn't be married? It's like, uh, me, I say. It's like that happening. Boaz is aware that there's a reason why they can't get married. And it's there in verse 12. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I wow there's another guy and he's got the right to claim Naomi and Ruth before Boaz just when we thought it was going to be a happy ending there's the complication and all of Naomi's plan could be completely derailed now We'll have to see in chapter 4 if and how, if it happens, this complication is overcome. So don't read Ruth 4 before Graham speaks next week because you'll spoil it for yourselves. Don't read the end of the book. Not good. But you'll have a look at that next week. But Ruth 3 is all about the kinsman redeemer. This relative that steps in to save the day by marrying their close relative. 
It's a strange way in our minds to save the day, isn't it? We would just write a check, wouldn't we? But that was their way of doing it. And we think that it's weird, perhaps because our society is so wealthy, we don't even think of marriage in those terms. Because we don't need to. But it was a vital lifeline for many widows throughout Israel's history that God put there for the good of his people. And now that you know about it, when you're reading other parts of the Bible, I reckon you'll come across it time and time again because it's there all the way through the Bible. You'll find other examples. But this idea of a kinsman who redeems is more than just an important social safety net for the ancient world. It's actually something that prefigures the work of Christ in several ways, for Christ is our kinsman. Uh, we're told in Hebrews chapter 2, 14 to 17, that he was made like us, just like us in every way, so that he could save us, our kinsman who redeems us. We learn in Ephesians 5, to 33, that the church is the bride of Christ that is washed clean and therefore saved by Christ through his death on the cross. It's all very familiar to people who know Ruth. You see, Boaz was a kinsman redeemer, but he and all the other kinsman redeemers of Israel's history were getting God's people ready for the kinsman redeemer the Lord Jesus. Jesus is that relative, that human in history that has provided salvation. By dying on the cross, he paid the penalty for sin so that all who trust him need not die and face God's just judgment, but rather die and live forever in heaven with God. So friends, Ruth 3 points forward in time to Jesus and calls us to put our trust in our kinsman redeemer and so be saved. And the great news is that when we do trust in Jesus, we're completely forgiven. We're washed clean and we become citizens of heaven. Just like Ruth and Naomi, we are set for life. We don't have to do anything. It's great news, isn't it? Because our kinsman redeemer saved us. We don't have to go out and try and earn our own salvation, earn our keep, earn our way to heaven. Our sin is fixed up. It's atoned for. We can rest in what Christ has done for us, in the salvation of our kinsman redeemer. So let me ask you an important question then. Have you put your trust in Jesus? Have you accepted the work of the kinsman redeemer? Now, if you answer that question, yes, yes, 
then friends, celebrate that fact. Take joy in that fact. Because you are set for life. No, no, no. You're set for eternal life. Which is better by far. But if you were there going, um, I'm not sure. Then let me encourage you to not wait around any longer. Your kinsman redeemer has popped the question to you this morning. And if you're unsure about what to do next, then perhaps chatting to a friendly local Anglican minister might be the next best thing to do. And saying, hey, I want to put my trust in Jesus. How do I do that? What do I do next? So grab Graham after the service. Friends, I can tell you that trusting Jesus is the best decision I've ever made in my life. Better even than the choice of who I was to marry. Okay? For Jesus is the kinsman redeemer that saved me. Who saved my life. And transform my life. And he can do the same for you. Let's pray and thank him. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We thank you that in your great mercy, you organized for Naomi to be refilled through the kindness and grace of Ruth and Boaz. And we thank you for that weird to us kinsman redeemer thing that Israel had because you cared enough to put it in your law for them and we thank you for all the people who were helped through that law in Israel's hard history but Lord we thank you even more for your grace towards us in Jesus that you sent him as our kinsman redeemer the one who was just like us in every way, yet was without sin, but died as if he had sinned because he was taking our sin on his shoulders. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that not only will we trust the Lord Jesus and be saved by our kinsman Redeemer, but that we would also praise his name Tell others about him and then bring honour to his name by living his way so that you would be glorified through him and through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.